0: The little town I grew up in had a festival every summer that ended in a parade. I vividly remember as a young boy sitting on the curb, watching the marching band's floats and the big old men with funny hats on little motorcycles go goofing by. My favorite part, of course, was waiting for some of the floats to throw handfuls of candy at me. Though they happened every year, I never knew exactly what to expect, I just had to sit there and wait for each of these units to pass by. In my little town, just off the parade route, was a tall water tower. There was a metal ladder attached to the frame, and if a person had enough guts and lacked enough common sense, he or she could climb to the top of that water tower. If you did, during that festival, from that water tower, you could see every single spot in our little town. I could see every single float, band, and where those goofy guys on motorcycles were. I could see where the parade began and ended, and all along the line, all at once. I think of those parades in my little town in that water tower when I read Daniel chapter 7 through 12. It's like God allowed Daniel to climb the water tower to get a high-level view of the parade of the rest of human history. Daniel chapter 7, quite simply, is remarkable. In Daniel chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, Daniel's lying on his bed. He's not sure if he has a vision or a dream. How it happened was kind of fuzzy, but what happened in this vision or dream was vivid and very unsettling. Daniel sees a vast sea, and out of the sea come four beasts. The first is like a lion, it's fast and conquering, and then stands upright like a man. The second is like a bear, it's ferocious and devours. The third is like a leopard, stealthy and lightning fast. And then a fourth beast comes up, he can't even really give it a metaphor. It's just vicious and awful. It has iron teeth and ten horns. Everything its iron teeth doesn't smash and eat, it tramples below its feet. Then in Daniel's vision, as he watches, three of these ten horns on the beast are pushed out, like a tooth pushing out another tooth, and up from that spot comes a little horn. Then in Daniel's vision, he's whisked into a courtroom scene. The old one, the ancient one, comes. He clearly knows this is the most ancient one, God. The Ancient One opens the books, then destroys this last ferocious beast and its little horn. Then in Daniel's vision, one like the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven and walks up to the Ancient of Days. This Ancient One gives this Son of Man dominion over all people, everywhere, for all time. He's a king over an everlasting kingdom. Does that sound familiar? Daniel, in this vision, speaks to one standing by and says, You've got to tell me what this means. The person he asks, perhaps one of God's bellboys and angels, says, Daniel, I'd be happy to. The four beasts you see are four kings of four kingdoms. They will arise one after the other, and then this eternal king will arrive, and he will be with God's people, no longer slapped around by human kings and kingdoms, and it will be that way forever. There, in one vision or dream, Daniel is given the sweep of human history to the very end. As you move forward in chapters 8 through 12, Daniel is given more visions where God begins to flesh out the details of his chapter 7 till the end of time vision. Daniel is told in chapter 8 Babylon is the first kingdom, Medo Persia is the second, Greece is the third. The fourth is left unidentified, but with many, many clues. In chapters 10 through 12, God gives Daniel even more details about these kingdoms. It's as if Daniel on the water tower gets a pair of binoculars. Extremely specific details are given about the third kingdom, Greece. Unmistakable details about Alexander the Great, the four generals who replaced him upon his early death, and one leader who'd flow out of these four leaders, Antiochus III. So specific are these details that many scholars believe Daniel couldn't have been written in 540 BC, but had to be written after 190 BC, after the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. There are also many details given about the fourth kingdom. Many say that kingdom was the kingdom that replaced Greece, the Roman Empire. I want to remind you Daniel is a prophet. Prophecy is its own genre. Also, perhaps it would be good to go back to episode 8. In that episode, I reminded us all, we are pygmies and God and his word and plans are an iPhone. God is trying to explain things to us about his plans some millennia in the future. Perhaps the best he can do is crude metaphors. Please also remember, as I talked about in episode 14, God is outside of time. He's on a different clock than we are. All this to say as you read the prophecies of Daniel, and again in the New Testament when we get to the prophetic book of Revelation, keep these things in mind. Have the attitude of humility. Jot your notes with a pencil and make sure there's a good eraser on it. We'll learn later in the book of Revelation prophecies about the future from God are meant to give his kids comfort and hope. What's important are not the exact order or timing of events, but the outcomes. In the case of Daniel, that one day God will hand authority and dominion for all his kids over to an eternal king who acts justly, loves mercy, and lives among his people. Daniel further identifies that king, that eternal king, his term, the Son of Man. Please, file that term away, the Son of Man. I get the sense Daniel had been in the prophecy of Jeremiah when we get to Daniel chapter 9. In Jeremiah 25 11 and 12, Jeremiah prophesies that Judah will be in Babylon as exiles for 70 years. Daniel realizes the clock is ticking and those 70 years are almost up. So in chapter 9, Daniel prays a prayer of purification for the exiles in Judah. He pours his heart out to God for the sins of he and his people. He prays, O Lord, for your name's sake, cause your face to shine on Jerusalem and your people. Don't delay. Don't hesitate. At the end of chapter 6, we were told, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That probably explains why the historical book of Ezra begins by telling us that Cyrus, the king of Persia, proclaimed throughout all Persia that any exiles of Judah could go home to Judah and rebuild. We'll look at Ezra and his account of that proclamation and the return of a remnant of exiles to the land God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in our next word picture.